We don't innovate until there's pressure to innovate, right? Like it's problems don't get solved because they exist. Problems get solved because there's a reason to solve it. And so now there is pressure to solve problems that we haven't really bothered to try to solve. And we're seeing new technologies that are able to solve it with great unit economics, that it's not philanthropies, that they're actually businesses. And so what gives me hope is I, I do believe capitalism is going to be able to solve climate change and reverse climate change for humanity. Hi, and welcome to Move Fast and Fix the Planet. I'm your host, Michael Levick, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford. I'm also an Associate Faculty Director of STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, where we empower aspiring entrepreneurs to become global citizens who create and scale responsible innovations. Of course, one of the biggest global challenges we face is climate change and the sustainability of our planet. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk to a different expert about entrepreneurship in climate and sustainability and what's different about it, if anything, from entrepreneurship in other spaces. On today's show, I'm thrilled to welcome Arvind Gupta. Arvind is a partner at Mayfield, focusing on investments in human and planetary health, where his mission is to invest in science-based companies that could change history. He's also the founder of IndieBio, a development program for biotech startups trying to solve major world problems. Prior to founding IndieBio, he was design director at IDEO in Shanghai. Arvind is also the author of Decoding the World, a roadmap for the questioner, a firsthand account of the science that's shaping our future. He was honored with the F50 Global Award for Impact in Health Tech Innovation and is a frequent speaker at TechCrunch Disrupt, Slush, TEDx, and Future Food Tech. Arvin received his BS in genetic engineering from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and holds eight patents. Welcome, Arvin. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is, this is a lot of fun to have you here today. You know, I want to dive right in. And, you know, you've been a pioneer in investing in, in science-based companies that look to tackle some of the world's most pressing challenges. You know, you've looked at reinventing the food system to combating climate change to a host of other really tough problems. How did you first get involved in sort of human and planetary health? And maybe if even before that, you can discuss a little bit about what does planetary health mean to you? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that question. It's a, it was a long and winding road to get to today. And I'll share some of that with you guys. Because it, it is interesting, um, and there are some lessons that I've drawn from it. But look, to address your second question first, planetary health just refers to the idea that our planet has you know, health just like human health, right? Like people have, uh, we think of our own bodies and we get sick, we take medicine, we heal ourselves. Our planet also gets sick. And we are and have been making it sick. And there are ways we need to give it medicine to make it better and make it better for everyone. Because when the planet gets sick, people die. And a lot of people die. It's projected over the next 50 years, more people will die from climate change related activities and deaths than all diseases combined. So that's a significant impact. Also, as the planet gets sicker, what's going to happen is our resources become much, much more scarce. And with scarcity, prices get driven up. Inflation goes up, as everyone talking about today. 
and that causes prices to rise and it increases inequality. So planetary health is linked to two of the biggest problems that I see in the next 50 years, which is climate-related deaths and rising inequality. Those are, those are big problems to tackle, but the good news is human ingenuity and capitalism combined with opportunity can solve these problems in a way that we've never seen before. I really like the way that you, you, know, you started with grounding this in the environmental health of our planetary ecosystems. But then, interestingly, and I didn't necessarily see it going this way, you use the economic piece to then connect it over to equity and inequality. And that brings together that triple bottom line that we often think about when we talk about sustainability. And it also relates it very closely to the topic for this podcast, which of course is is a capitalism investing venture type topic, right? And and so I really appreciate the way that you were able to weave all of that together. So how did you get into this? Yeah, well, it's a it's an interesting question. I didn't grow up knowing what venture capital was. I didn't grow up knowing what entrepreneurship was. My dad's a professor at UCLA. My mom's an accountant. Um, they're immigrants from India. I'm first generation and grew up in Los Angeles. And it was in Van Nuys, uh, you know, which, which isn't the world's best neighborhood. And so this idea of going out on your own and building a world-changing company was completely foreign to me mm-hmm. until just, just recently, really, in the last decade or two, uh, last 10 years. And so I grew up thinking, okay, I'm going to be a scientist. And so I went to school at UC Santa Barbara. I studied genetic engineering, got interested in economics through thinking about how DNA self-assembles and economics is basically the self-assembly of society. And so thought there was wow, overlap that's, there. that's a very interesting jump there from, from, from <laughs> saying that, you know, we were studying the, the genetics of DNA and the assembly and then, and then you connected that, uh, wow, I think this is a lot like economics. Um, uh, I just want to recognize that that's an interesting jump that I don't know everyone would make. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, it's, it was, so the way DNA coils itself, I mean, this is in 1992, 93, 94. It was a lot less known about genetics back then. And so in thinking about like, how does miles and miles of DNA filament pack itself down inside a a tiny little cell, right? In a nucleus of a cell. And then unpack and get read uh, to to drive the instructions and then refold back up to divide. It's fascinating to think about that. Like, and so for me, just thinking about what are all the things that create this kind of um, self-assembly, it just naturally led my, I I don't know. my curiosity led me there. And then I remember my first um, economics class. I was hooked. Uh, it was macroeconomics and uh, introduction to macroeconomics. Yeah. And the first lines of the, of the class, the professor said, um, human desire is unlimited. And because of that, we have the study of economics because economics is a study of scarcity. And I, I think like that stuck with me in a way that I still to this day think about, and it drives the way I think about investing in planetary health mm. because I, I do take that to be a fundamental truth, a, a, a truth as much as gravity. And so 
if we think about that and then look at the economic system we have, the capitalism, capitalism will always deliver what the consumer wants. Always. I guess the, the equilibrium of economic theory is in itself kind of a self-assembling uh, construct, right? And that, yes. that equilibrium yes. that, that, we, that we achieve in, in markets, whether they're micro or macro in scale, uh, I, I can absolutely, now that, you're, now that you're discussing it, see how you would make that jump. So, so you're studying genetic engineering, and, and, and then what uh, next? Yes. So what next? Uh, yeah, because we could continue on tangents like for several hours. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, I, genetic engineering I saw was extremely powerful even in the mid nineties, when you think of it at a high level, the ability to reprogram life, uh, it's just obvious that it's going to be powerful beyond belief. The issue was back then, it was really a set of protocols. It was not a technology yet. It was, you know, um, restriction enzymes and random walks and the things that we were doing were extremely basic by today's standards. And what would take me a week or a month of prep, now you do overnight um, and by mail, by mail order. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, I don't know really, uh, I don't want to be a, you know, I don't want to be a doctor and I certainly don't want to be a bench scientist. Um, I know this is very powerful, but what else can I do with my mind? And so, you know, I go back to economics and I say, well, okay, if there's a lot of different variables all that are changing at the same time, maybe I can try to predict how those variables play out and um, make a bet on it. Where could I do that? The stock market. Hmm. So I moved to San Francisco and uh, stood on the steps of the Pacific Stock Exchange. And everyone that came out, I asked, hey, could I get you some coffee or something? You just give me a job. And one guy was like, yeah, give me, a, you know, I'll give you a job and um, you can get my coffee and check my trades. So I got on the floor There I started to learn what was going on. I started asking a lot of questions and a small trading firm backed me to be a market maker in the Microsoft pit. That's where I learned uh, making money without creating value is kind of like leads you to a life of of consumption as a way of measuring yourself. Mm, Interesting. I'd I'd also like to point out someone took a chance on you. Oh, many people over and over again in life have taken chances on me. Yeah. And so now... I think we'll ultimately we'll get to you as a venture investor where your job is to in some extent taking a chance on people. But I think yeah. that's an interesting point in, in life when you think yeah. about the people who took a chance on you. Yeah. I, I mean, there, I can name, you'll hear in my story, you know, like crucial moments where I would certainly not be where I am today if it wasn't for a number of people that believed in me. Um, and so because I, my life goes in a way that, it wasn't a straight line. And so therefore, when you go in a different direction, someone has to take a chance on you because you're not obvious. So anyway, I got on the floor, started trading, realized that this wasn't the life that uh, I envisioned for myself. And I knew I could do it. I knew I could make money from trading and options market making. So I said, okay, well, let's run the experiment. If I do nothing, whatever it is I do, when I do nothing, if I can make a living doing that, then I'm on vacation for the rest of my life. So I decided to run the experiment, close my positions down, walked out the floor. And uh, that's when I learned um, basically to, to find the art side of my life. Um, I started reading a lot of the classics. Uh, I basically lived in Moe's books in Berkeley. Uh, and um, 
And I started to like write poetry, things like that, make my own furniture out of like driftwood. Um, and a friend of mine who I was teaching how to bass jump, I was a bass jumper at the time uh, and a big wall climber. And uh, he was like, oh, you should be a designer. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, it's solving problems with science and art and blend it together. And I've never heard of design ever in my life. And I was like, you could make a living. And he's like, yeah. And so I enrolled in a master's program at SF State. That was another person that took a chance on me. I had no background in art. And uh, Stefano, I was, hey, you know, like, how could I be a designer? All these kids know how to draw and all this stuff. And he's like, it's not about drawing. It's about life experiences and using that to solve problems. It's about the ideas that matters far more. And I said, oh, okay. So that gave me the courage to, to even try. And then the head of the program took a chance on me that here's a guy with no portfolio, no nothing. Yeah, sure. Come in. So two years in, I had a student show and a global lead of industrial design from IDEA, um, a guy named Paul Bradley, mm-hmm. saw my work and he said, hey, we, you, know, you should come in and work with IDEA. And I uh, said, okay, so here's another guy that <laughs> took a chance on me. And well, he's really coming was... from the IDEA office in Palo Alto, I imagine. Correct. Uh, with you know David Kelly, Tim Brown, mm-hmm. you know you, the the people that you know at the D school for, uh, sure. for Stanford, and so that's where I started really understanding. So design was formative for me because fundamentally I'm still a designer, and what that means is I look at the world through the lens of finding problems, and problems are far more important than solutions to me because problems are persistent. Um, you never just solve a problem. It's kind of funny, right? We have the same humanity as the same set of fundamental problems as it does that it did a million years ago um, or even 200,000 years ago as homo sapiens. And um, we just solve it with different technologies and uh, human connection is the same fundamental problem. Now we have TikTok and Tinder and all these apps, uh, Instagram, Zoom, Zoom. We have bar, you know, bar. So, but the connection hasn't been solved. It's not like, Oh, okay, we can move on from that. I'm hoping climate change is different. I do hope we can solve that and move on from it. And I think we can. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. But problems are really – I always said as a, as a design director, um, the better the problem, the better the product. And so you might as well spend your time honing and refining your problem. And that includes all the constraints around your problem. Because the more you find the constraints, the more your product designs itself in the right way. And if a designer is spending too much time trying to design, they haven't found the actual problems they're trying to solve, and their solution is going to suck. Uh, their, their, their design is just not going to be something that resonates with people because it's too much of the hand of the designer yeah. and not the hand of the problem. So uh, from there, you know, I always thought, what else can design do? How do we find more constraints? Started building businesses through product. Uh, as we started expanding what design could do at IDEO with business design and things like that. And I was doing a lot of the technology products and projects. I designed the Samsung Galaxy Curve. Um, I did a project with LG where the design brief was design a $500 million business. And we did that with McKinsey. Um, So I learned all these tools. And that's when I was in Shanghai. Uh, My wife had this idea for a fitness startup when we were walking around in Xi'an. She built it, launched it three months later, and it was being used very quickly all over the world. Thousands of people. Um, she was getting emails from people saying, hey, you changed my life uh, because you helped me get started on my fitness journey. And 
I was like, man, I've designed all this stuff. I've won all these awards and no one's ever emailed me that they changed, that I changed their life. Right. Like it was just a remarkable, it was a remarkable experience to me. And so we were coming back to the Bay area and my friends had left and become early stage employees at like Square and other startups. And this is 2013. And I met this guy named Sean O'Sullivan, who uh, was running basically a family office, but he had this idea to start these accelerators that are vertically focused. And he had one in Shenzhen called Hacks. And it was a hardware accelerator, first of its kind. And I saw that and I thought always back to genetic engineering. I never lost my love of of science. I kept up with papers. So I knew the advancements that were happening in the field. And I was thinking about blending them in with design the whole time. And I wrote a paper actually in the Journal of Commercial Biotechnology in 2011 that you could look up that asked the question, what happens if you mix design thinking with scientific method? And you can actually speed up R&D. So I saw this thing that Sean was doing as an idea, as a test bed for what design and investing in early stage biotechnology could do. I thought, okay, well, what would a vertical accelerator for biotechnology, synthetic biology, and genetic engineering look like? And what could we do with it? Well, when you reprogram life, you make it more efficient. What's the most pressing problem of our time that I could spend the next 50 years of my life working on? Climate change, disease. These are the things that are persistent, don't go away, and expertise in that can continue over time. So I basically, you know, said, Sean, look, he was saying, hey, you know, I gave a talk at Hacks and he's like, I think you should be a VC. And as I thought about it, I thought, okay, yeah, you're right. We could do something like this and reinvent what financing early stage biotech companies look like. And all of these postdocs were coming free. And um, there's a phrase called the postdocalypse, where postdocs basically don't have jobs to go to because professors aren't retiring. And there's more postdocs and positions available. So I saw this stock of human um, talent, like real talent. Like it takes a lot of talent to be a postdoc. And they had no options. But if they can be, you know, if you give them a chance to work really hard and work on a hard problem, I, I bet they could solve it. So I started, uh, you know, I proposed that to Sean. Sean agreed. So I joined SMSV and as a partner and built IndieBio here in, the, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. And that was the simple premise. Um, but no one really believed it at the time, right? Because one, biotech had to be expensive. And I was proposing financing it for 100K, mm. um, which is la laughable, literally laughable. Yeah. I, I still, it's naive to me even today to think about that. Uh, <laughs> but, and that postdocs could be entrepreneurs, laughable. No one believed that. And that biotech had to be only for drug making, which, you know, you could make you could make things cheaper and more efficiently. So why wouldn't you have economic value there? So anyway, um, those things turned out to be true, and um, IndieBio took off, and we funded companies like Memphis Meats, now Upside Foods, uh, the first cell-based meat company, Clara Foods, um, now every company, Egg Whites Without Chickens a host of agricultural um, companies and a couple dozen therapeutics companies. The combined market cap is north of five, six billion dollars today. And um, about three years ago, I realized after building a New York office, I really wanted to work with fewer founders deeper. And so I, and I hired Poe Bronson, 
who I wrote a book with, and I knew he was more than capable of growing IndieBio and mm. uh, keeping its true north. So I thought to myself, well, why don't I learn how to help these companies grow all the way to maturity and um, join Mayfield as a general partner in order to do that? Because 100,000 doesn't get you very far. No, but the ecosystem of follow-on financing does. And that's so, exactly right. That's right. And so billions of dollars, you know, over well over a billion dollars have been raised by indie bio companies. But I was just spread really thin and I wanted I worked very closely with every single company that moved through the through moved through indie bio for the first 10 batches. I mean, every single company I worked with on a personal basis mm-hmm. for four and a half months um, and then stayed with them afterwards. But that just as too many founders, you just don't have time. So now I'm focused, much more focused and and selective in the problems that I'm working on. So yeah, that takes me to today. Yeah, wow. Well, so that leads me to sort of my next question, mm-hmm. which you know, with regard to to sort of having a front seat to seeing the evolution of startups in this space by being such a a force in indie bio and then now being able to do rounds of follow-on at Mayfield. Do you think that investing in sort of the climate and sustainability startup space is, is different than other sectors, whether it's tech or med tech or any other vertical for that matter? Yeah, it's very different. I mean, the fundamental physics of business are always going to be the same, but the companies in planetary health often have different business physics because of their sectors. In other words, software, which is what most of Sandhill Road invests in, typically has very low uh, manufacturing costs, right? Um, high margin. Copy paste. <laughs> so like, so that, that generally- A lot of high margin, yeah. That right. generally leads to high margin. Now, that's not always true, right? Because uh, <laughs> oftentimes these companies spend a lot of money on marketing, on distribution, with the recent AI companies, manufacturing costs have actually gone up mm. because you do have to pay to train models or do API, you know, um, token calls. So, so some of that's changed. But basically, planetary health companies oftentimes are physical products, and so therefore you have very different gross margin structures. Fundamentally, capital, capital intensity is very different. Much higher capital intensity. Um, oftentimes, scale is the one thing that gets you to positive unit economics, which means. $200 million might need to go into the company prior to seeing any real um, profit margins. You might see revenues before, but you're paying through the nose for them. So those need to be very respected and you need to design businesses that could survive that kind of uh, growth. So through the valley of death, right? Which is you have to get through that capital intensity in order to get to positive unit at margins. And that's typically called the valley of death. So it is different that way, but it's not different in the entrepreneurial pluck that's required, the animal spirits that are required to find customers, land them, deliver to them, and have them order more. You know, all of that is required. Uh, that's that's the same. Yeah, I mean, the business of business is still business, correct? As they that's say. Correct. And but that brings up an interesting question, and I know this is an odd question to pose to a venture capitalist, is venture capital the right funding mechanism for these types of companies? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, There is no one universal tool. Um, And so 
a lot of these companies were have different business physics, which lend itself to different rates of return. There are vast amounts of capital seeking different rates of return. So venture seeks extremely high rates of return, some of the highest on the planet, the highest on the planet that I know about. And therefore, only you know certain business physics will match that. Now, for physical products, that means a very, very high total addressable market. So $50 billion total addressable market or more, preferably a lot more than that. So there aren't that many categories that have that high a TAM, which you could then make up for a lower gross margin in revenue. So let's just say your price to sales uh, or price to revenue multiple in your sector is usually, I don't know, three. I'll make up something. Um, you know, mm-hmm. consumer packaged good is usually lower than that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one point five to two point five. Let's just say it's three. You, you can still get to a multi-billion-dollar valuation, ten billion dollars on three to five billion dollars of revenue. Now it takes a long time to get there. It takes longer, so you have to figure out how you're going to fit within your time horizon, investment horizon, which is ten years typically for venture funds. You have to figure all that out. But if you can know your destination, you can design your way there. And I'm a big fan of of destination analysis. Where am I going? What does it look like? Paint that picture and now draw your map and you have your assumptions and go test your assumptions on the way to victory. So I think like that's the way to think about it. One of the things that we like to call that in our book is future back planning. Draw your future and and then back plan. Um, great, great know, phrase. But is that venture? Uh, there's uh, private equity. There's other pools of capital. There's debt financing uh, that have different return requirements that might be better suited for different types of businesses. So I think like that's something that great founders can do, or even different times. Right, seed stage can be venture, but later on you can go find alternative non-equity forms of financing. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of connects me to my next question is that you talk about the returns for venture being very high. But of course, that's necessary to offset the extreme risk associated with most venture investments and sort of the power law of returns, right? If you're mm-hmm. if you're only going to get a small fraction of companies that that do provide returns, then they have to offset everything else. And so do you think there is a model in this space where maybe the risk, because the TAMs are so large, because these problems are so fundamental, that maybe the risk of failure is lower and therefore you don't need to get those high returns on the winners that you do pick? Or is the risk of a failed startup, in your experience, equally as high? And so therefore, that power law that is sort of the fundamental underlying principle of venture portfolio theory, does that still hold in this space or, or can it be broken? It's a good question. I think, um, I think in, in the end, it goes back to what are your goals, right? So our goal at Mayfield is to be a top fund, consistent top fund, which it is. And so that means having consistent top returns. Top returns are always driven by outliers. And so you you can get more consistent. Let's just say with C, let let's just say we're going to do CPG. You can do something where you're doing five hundred or two hundred to five hundred million dollar exits by building a certain um, revenue that then gets flipped at Nestle. But one, you're not going to solve climate change when you sell to Nestle. 
generally, because they have different goals. And two, you're not going to generate the sort of world-changing types of returns either. So I think that goes back to the goals. For me, I want to invest in companies that can make history. And that means reinventing or reshaping sectors. And Tesla is a great example of a sustainability company, in my mind, that is a better car. And cars are $1.5 trillion TAM. And it's one of the great successes of Silicon Valley. And it's, it's an example of the number of sectors that are going to be reshaped uh, by entrepreneurs in planetary health and the types of returns that are going to happen in doing so. Hmm. I think it's a great example. You know, if you were, if you were going to advise a startup founder sort of in this space of just the one or two things that you would make sure are right in order to talk to whether it's somebody at, at IndieBio to get some of that initial funding or to go on to pitch to a general partner at Mayfield uh, and say, look, I'm in the climate and sustainability space, but this is why I'm a great investment. What are those couple things that you would advise them to make sure are right? Yeah. Well, one, I think they have to be uncompromising. What I look for is uncompromising founders. It's the one key trait that I see that's been common to all the great founders that I've backed in my own personal experience. And the one common trait when I look out to the entrepreneurs that I admire, people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, Yvonne Chignard of Patagonia, all of them are uncompromising, 100% uncompromising. And that leads to uh, controversies at times, right? Steve Jobs was not an easy person to work with. Elon Musk, certainly not an easy person or personality. Um, I don't know uh, Yvonne Chignard uh, as well, but they were all uncompromising in their values and what they were trying to accomplish. So I think if you go in to pitch, show that how you're uncompromising in your what you're building and how you're going to use the market forces to solve the problem that you're setting out to solve. Second, I think you need to have an amazing team. No one person can build a company. And I think there's a lot of founders that think about the product they're building versus the company they're building. And founders that think about the company they're building invariably go much further. Finally, the the physics of what you're doing, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're going to create, if there's only one thing to, to think about in terms of uh, business physics, it's, it's the product. How are you 10 times better than your closest substitute? Now, that also determines your very specific total addressable market. So Beyond Meat was 10 times better, arguably, than a Boca burger, a veggie burger, the frozen top meat, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was not 10 times better and still is not better, 10 times better, in most people's opinion, to a ground beef from uh, a cow uh, that you could buy at Whole Foods or whatever. And so meat eaters don't switch to beyond as fast as everyone hoped because it's just not better yet. It's just, it's not better for, you know, health-wise, not better taste-wise. So, so the market size of, of beyond is actually a lot smaller than the market size of meat. Yeah. It's the market size of veggie burgers. So that's how you, you get know, to think about what your actual TAM is. Yeah. You know, the, the 10, I, I often get questions of when I say you must be 10x better. Than, yeah. your, than your than your next closest substitute. 
folks will often ask me, well, what does that mean? Does that mean 10x yeah. cheaper? Does that mean no. 10x faster? And what I, what I tell them is, you know, you have to understand your customer. What does your customer value and what their most important value proposition is? You have to be 10x on that metric. And if you're asking the question, how do I need to be 10x better? You don't know your customer well enough. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to say it. I think um, for me, there's two parts to it. One is a simple definition of 10x is once I use the product, I can never imagine going back to the old way. So once you use an iPhone, you can't imagine going back to a BlackBerry. Once I use a Tesla, I can't imagine going back to a gas car. These are 10x products. Now, can you be 10x cheaper? Can you be absolutely? So the whole idea to me. So the second the second part is understanding the dimension in which you're 10 times better than anyone else. So does a 10 times cheaper car have a place? Yeah, it definitely has a place in the world. So that's what I mean by then you'll understand what your true addressable market size is. Mm. Because how many people want a 10x cheaper car? That's your actual TAM, not $1.5 trillion. So when you get very specific, it's very helpful. And that's what new market creation does. Is it takes from the total TAM into where you're going. So I think like that's the most important way. That's why it's a it's a simple idea, but when you take it very seriously, it becomes a very powerful tool. Yeah, I like that a great deal. So one of the things you had said a little bit earlier really caught my attention. When you combine design thinking with scientific method, you can accelerate R&D. Mm-hmm. And and I really like that because to me, what that says is that the first couple stages of design thinking always focus on customer empathy and the definition of a problem. Whereas in the scientific method, we start with asking a hypothesis. Right? We've, and we've seen a lot of interesting work come out around hypothesis-driven innovation at startups. And it's always kind of an interesting mix. Mm-hmm. But but you have a background in design and creative thinking and, and shaping solutions. How do you see all of this coming together as it relates to planetary health? Yeah. So for me, the simple way to think about it is scientific method does not presuppose a destination. Design thinking starts with a destination and comes backwards uh, to today. So when you blend the two, you actually get a very, a very powerful tool to accelerate our research and develop to solve a problem. So that's the, the high level takeaway, right? Um, and so when it comes to planetary health, every single sector that we have has carbon flowing through it. So when you think about it, a simple way to stratify the world is all the carbon humanity creates flows through three general buckets. One is feeding the world. The second is building the world. And the third is powering the world. And that is $100 trillion of market value in terms of global GDP. It's an incredible amount of opportunity. So when you think about it, let's just take energy. Well, I'm just making stuff up really quickly now. Um, let's just take uh, uh, airline travel. How do we decarbonize airline travel? You get to really start thinking about, okay, uh, how we have a range of advancements in biology, physics, AI, all of these, you know, in pure science, you've got these problems out there. 
and you're basically taking from this toolbox of scientific advancement and applying those advancements to that end problem of say airline emissions. And then you work forwards using the business of physics to understand how you can create a sustainable company that lasts 20 years and reshapes the sector. It's that simple, right? Um, and so, and great entrepreneurs do this implicitly. So what I'm saying is not a, it shouldn't be a shock to anyone. It's pretty obvious when I say it out loud, right? But that's how I believe every single sector we have is going to get reshaped. And I'm very positive and hopeful about the future because I'm starting to see market forces start to ramp up and start to reward companies that are thinking this way. Hmm. Uh, oil and gas really is paying for solutions. Now, call it greenwashing or not, they're paying for solutions. Yep. If you look at um, fashion industry, they're paying for solutions. Uh, Microworks is a alternative leather uh, made from mushrooms that we uh, that was funded by IndieBio. And they're doing great. Um, so food and ag, uh, enterprises are paying for alternative protein. So I think like that's where I see how all of these scientific advancements are going to be funneled into products uh, delivered through capitalism to fulfill the unlimited desires of people. But in doing so, we create a sustainable capitalism. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that the opportunity is not just large, but unparalleled in, in human history to some extent. But that opportunity will take time. Yep. And capitalism and markets take time. And so how do you think about balancing the need for urgency to treat a planet that is not the healthiest it's ever been with the patience and resilience that's required for building really big solutions? Yeah. Those two things, how do you, how do you square them? Well, Historically, private sector has started the big ideas, and then the public sector has scaled them. So it's interesting. Fission reactors started privately, and then the government helped figure out how to had funding, how to scale them into actual workable reactors. So I don't think this can be any different um, because as the problem becomes bigger and bigger, un unfortunately, right, like we as a society focus on problems that are very short term. We don't tend to give stock to problems that are smaller and further out because we just don't think it warrants our attention. I mean, going back to your economics analogy, we have a very different way of discounting future value in our minds than things that are valued today. Yes, absolutely. And so I think um, what's going to happen is as climate change gets worse and crops start getting lost, people's economic livelihoods start to get lost. Migration becomes, well, yeah, the governments are going to step in. There's going to be a lot more money flowing through. IRA has already fueled a lot of innovation around hydrogen, for instance. I've seen more hydrogen companies in the last year get formed than all the priors combined. So the government does have a large role to play, and it will have a large role to play. And even in our more divided political system, it's going to be a, a topic that that does get attention, uh, and it does get attention worldwide. Europe is leading right now in climate funding and and getting initiatives through governments in Europe. So, I think like that's where there's good. It's going to take all capital, 
<laughs> to solve this you know enormous problem and it will take time but i believe in humanity i'm a big believer in people and uh the power of ingenuity and the power of what we can do when we put our minds to it i i have a front row seat to it yeah i guess the analogy i would make is then what you know when when we were all locked in our homes your field of genetic engineering was able to solve a global problem because there was a global pressing need in a time frame that we have never witnessed before. Exactly. It's and and the pace of acceleration of these technologies is just increasing and with AI, you know, like it it is an amazing time to be alive in that sense. The pace of innovation is going to continue exceeding every year the year prior by a lot. It is a fascinating time. Uh, and this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, before we finish, we like to do a little segment on our show called Four to Fix the Planet. And so it's a series of questions that we ask every guest. You ready? Okay, let's go. All right, what's on your bookshelf, playlist, or feed right now? Um, let me see. I'm listening to a book called What It Takes by Steve Schwartzman, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Wow. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. What's keeping <laughs> so you up at night? Yeah, so far. What's keeping you up at night? Um, you know, I think uh, just making sure that we can design planetary health businesses in a way that creates um, resilience in this high interest rate environment and that we're able to um, find the enterprise customers and, and uh, business customers for these companies that really do pay the premiums. Uh, that are required to create venture returns for everyone. Um, and I think, I, I wouldn't say it's keeping me up at night because I'm starting, I'm seeing wins in that direction. You talked about it being a great time to be alive. Yeah. What's giving you hope? Uh, a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, just there's how much innovation and how, but we, we don't innovate until there's pressure to innovate, right? Like it's, Problems don't get solved because they exist. Problems get solved because there's a reason to solve it. And um, it's Darwinistic in that way, uh, requires a pressure. And so now there is pressure to solve problems that we haven't seen, that we haven't really bothered to try to solve. And we're seeing new technologies that are able to solve it with great unit economics, that it's not philanthropies, that they're actually businesses. And so what gives me hope is I, I do believe capitalism is a the greatest system for innovation humanity has ever produced is going to be able to solve climate change and reverse climate change for humanity. That is hopeful. What's your favorite sustainability hack? Something that people could do to add to their day-to-day -day lives that you like? Gosh, I, I don't know if I have anything super clever here. Um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, like for me, I really, yeah, I, I used to, I, I'm an athlete and so I require like high amounts of protein. I eat very well and healthy. And so being vegetarian has been hard for me in the sense that it comes with a lot of carbs in general, the protein that I get from whole legumes and things like that um, doesn't have the same balance. So for me, uh, you probably saw it earlier, I drink these protein shakes as a way of getting the protein that I need. And it's, you know, it's milk-based, but um, that's okay for me. And so that's what I'm doing as my hack, I'd say, is from my own personal life, that was the way I found uh, getting off meat to be the easiest and still maintain my competitive and fitness goals. Very cool. One other thing that I'm wondering, because you brought it up, hmm. what's your favorite classic? 
oh wow my you know like I spent all that Vol- time at berkeley reading class i did i did you know like it, that's a that's a that's an interesting question i mean uh jorge luis borges is um i don't know if it would be considered a classic mm-hmm. but he's probably my one of my favorite authors uh, also um Herman Hess uh, influenced me a lot, along with um, Albert Camus. The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus Mm -hmm. was probably the most influential book for me at that time. And this idea that loving toil, my takeaway from the book, right, was if you're rolling a ball up the hill every day, and that's supposed to be hell because you never go anywhere. Well, obviously, it's the absurdity of life is a metaphor for that, right? And so the only escape from hell is to love that toil, to love that rock, to love every rugosity, every divot, every crack in it, and to to learn it. And then you've escaped hell, and you've given yourself a way, a mechanism of really taking something from the from from the toil and making it your own experience and reframing it in a positive way. And that's, you know, goes a bit to Viktor Frankl's thinking as well. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, another great, not a classics, but I think an important work. Um, so anyway. Um, yeah. Well, I, and I, and I like, I like that as, as an ending because that, that actually connects well to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. You have to love, you have to love the problem, not and, the solution. Yeah. You got to love the toil. I, I think, I think work is when you find what you love to do, the work is truly a vacation. I mean, it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's not stressful. It's extremely stressful because you have goals and those goals are hard (laughs) and uh, building things and putting people together and leading uh, none of that's simple. And so, yeah, Yeah. I think, I think loving it is what makes it all worthwhile because there's a good chance it's not going to work anyway. For sure. Well, Thank you so much, Arvin, for taking time to talk with us today. That oh, was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Great questions, Mike. Today's guest has been Arvin Gupta of Mayfield. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe to Move Fast and Fix the Planet wherever you get your podcasts and help others find it by rating, reviewing, and sharing it. Learn more about this podcast and related work at stvp.stanford.edu forward slash sustainability. Move Fast and Fix the Planet is hosted by me, Mike Levick, and produced by STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center. This episode is supported by Stanford Ecopreneurship Programs. Our producers are Holly McCall and Anthony Ruth. Editing is by Stanford Video. For more podcasts, interviews, and articles, please visit stvp.stanford.edu forward slash ecorner.